it's a busy place, you know. But that's what I like about it. I like, I like being busy. <laughs> My name is Anna Tavares. I'm a registered nurse in the operating room. I come into work, uh, check the board, see where I'm headed, and then I'm off. It could be, you know, vascular, neurology, um, pediatrics, like, you know, whatever it is, I just go. I'm just crazy naturally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like this is a great place to work. You know, it's a learning experience. You're able to grow here. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I like to say that Rhode Island is the smallest state with the greatest backlog. You could be one moment at the beach, the next moment in a beautiful cityscape, then you can be at the front door of the Newport Mansions. And time is money when you're making a movie. The sort of rough calculation is that we have over 3,000 hours in running time of film. The majority of the film that we have here, because it is television news film, those are very short stories. They're on average, you know, about a minute long. So when you're talking about over 3,000 hours, you're talking about tens of thousands of individual news stories. It is common knowledge to all that non-whites are still largely restricted as to areas. Asking why storytelling is important is kind of like asking why air is important to me or why bread is important. It's because it's what we do as humans. It's how we make sense of things and how we, we talk to other people. People remember a story more than they do numbers or facts or figures because it's the way, it's literally the way our brains work. Good evening and welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm David Wright. I'm Pamela Watts. The Ocean State is a siren of the silver screen. Its beauty has long captured the eye of Hollywood, making it an ideal stage for the film and television industry. It might be hard to recall all the scenes shot here on our shores. Tonight, we invite you to take a look back at some of those iconic films and a look forward at real Rhode Island. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. For years, Rhode Island has been cast as a star in some of Hollywood's most celebrated movies. Are you learning anything about the idle rich? And recently, Disney has brought its magic. We shall be back! Hocus Pocus 2 with Sarah Jessica Parker and Bette Midler is just one of the latest films to feature the ocean state as its movie set. So Hollywood is in love with Rhode Island. Well, I like to say that Rhode Island is the smallest state with the greatest backlog. And Steven Feinberg, executive director of the Rhode Island Film and TV Office, says it's our diverse locations in close proximity that help make Little Rhodey a big deal. You could be one moment at the beach, the next moment in a beautiful cityscape, then you can be at the front door of the Newport Mansions. And time is money when you're making a movie. I can make a phone call, whether it's someone in our government or police department or fire department, all of those are available. There's no red tape. We are unlike any other place. I tell people we're like a old Western town. Everybody knows everybody. 
For Feinberg, knowing everybody in show business is the perfect role for him. He grew up going to local movie theaters like the historic Odium in East Greenwich. So I used to come here with my dad as a kid, and we would see films like The Man with the Golden Gun. The Man with the Golden Gun. He always uses a golden bullet. After film school, Feinberg became a writer and producer in L.A. When he returned to Rhode Island, he pushed for the state to adopt a 30% tax credit on what production companies spend in Rhode Island to attract more projects. A film directed by Kira Sedgwick is shooting right here in the Ocean State. Feinberg says we were one of the first states to offer the tax incentives. As a result, we brought the Brotherhood TV series here, then Underdog, Body of Proof, Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom, and it went like wildfire across the country. Originally, projects qualified for the tax credit if they shot more than half their production in Rhode Island. Since 2020, they also qualify if they spend at least $10 million on site. It's hoped this new option will encourage blockbuster movies like Mission Impossible or James Bond to shoot more of their travelogue-type scenes in Rhode Island. It also enabled Feinberg to land a show he had been courting for a dozen years, current HBO hit, The Gilded Age. My dear Mrs. Russell, of course you must come to Newport. <laughs> I insist. Feinberg collaborated with the Newport Preservation Society to seal the deal. I was a dog on a bone. They said, I want to know every home. I want to know every artifact. I want to know every costume. I want to know everything we have to offer. I just want to be at the table. Feinberg was finally able to bring everyone to the table, literally. The film commission threw an elegant candlelight dinner party right here in the gold ballroom of the Newport mansion known as Marble House. It was a scene that would rival something out of Downton Abbey. The creator of Downton Abbey and the Gilded Age, Julian Fellows, was wowed by Newport. I absolutely loved it. I had a really, really good time. I loved the cottages. The whole fantasy of Newport really completely suited me. It's not just outsiders who have found an artistic home here. Verdi Productions of East Greenwich brought the story of Rhode Island boxer Vinnie Paz to life in the epic Bleed for This. And Vault, a movie about Rhode Island's notorious bonded vault heist, is also the work of Verdi Productions and Tom DiNucci, writer, director, and actor. DiNucci based Vault on a true story about the New England mob. Growing up Italian-American in a place like Cranston, we don't have professional sports teams in Rhode Island, so um, we follow professional gangsters. I always paid attention to organized crime, and I was kind of fascinated by it, and loved movies like Goodfellas and Casino and The Godfather, and like those movies were like in my DNA, and I always wanted to make, you know, my version of a organized crime film. And action! Recently, Danucci filmed a dark comedy thriller in Rhode Island, Johnny and Clyde, starring Megan Fox. He took us behind the scenes in his Cranston home to see his creative process in action. I storyboard with action figures. I'm a big collector of action figures. So having these toys around, they've just kind of always been a part of my life. And I started 
building little mock-ups of, well, I think there could be a door right here, and I think we'll put the desk here. Danucci then photographs each scene to create his storyboard. I took this book on set, and I would make my notes. So I can kind of just take this photo and then figure out, this is what it should look like. These are the shots that we need to get to make it work. A lot of people may wonder, can you make a job out of this? It wasn't always easy. The first couple years I made movies, I didn't really, I probably made $2,000 in my first two years. <laughs> you were a starving artist. I make about a grand a year. Uh, so, you know, it was a dark time and I, I had to do a lot of crazy things to make money, like, like, like play poker and, uh, you know, sell baseball cards and just do whatever I could to, like, kind of make ends meet while trying to stay in the business. But I always told myself, like, this is going to be it. It's this or nothing. So the next piece I want to do is camera in the van, maybe. Danucci says in the past decade, he's made a good living at his profession. And he says his career also benefits from what he calls the home field advantage. I'm in movies all over the country for the most part. And the bigger the market, the less excited people are about what you're doing. For example, if you were to shoot a scene in a bakery in Los Angeles and you'd say, hey, we'd like to shoot our movie here, they're going to say, great, it's going to be five grand for the day and they're going to charge you a lot of money to rent it out. If you're trying to shoot a scene in a bakery in Rhode Island, you might be able to call your Uncle Frank up and he might say, yeah, I got a bakery right here. You can come in and shoot on Saturdays. We we'll close at one o'clock. You can shoot all night long, free of charge. Just overall, how do you think the future of filmmaking in Rhode Island looks right now? I think the future is very bright. It's really cool to see homegrown talent and Disney coming to town. You know, it's really great to get that mix. And I don't think that's going anywhere for a while. And Steven Feinberg agrees. The goal is if you have a dream, if you want to work hard, if you have a vision, there's an opportunity for you to shine and to live and work in a place you love. The place is Rhode Island. The filming of the second season of The Gilded Age gets underway this month in Newport. Hocus Pocus 2 will be released at Halloween. And the movie Space Oddity, starring Kevin Bacon, shot on location in Wickford, is expected to be out later this year. Up next, the rich history of making films in Rhode Island. It dates all the way back to the early 1900s. Tonight, Becca Bender, curator and archivist of the Moving Image and Audio Collections at the Rhode Island Historical Society, helps us dig through the stacks of celluloid treasures that bring to life our state's storied past. Any day really can bring a new treasure, and I'm sort of always discovering gems in here. I've been very fortunate in relocating myself on my own initiative. The Film Archive at the Historical Society started in 1969. The public affairs director at one of the local television stations, WPRI, he approached the Historical Society recognizing that the film that they had at the station had significant historical value and that the station itself was not necessarily the right place to house it and to provide access to the people of Rhode Island. That started the film archive here to begin with. 
once they saw the value of that and saw that the television stations were willing to work with the historical society, they also went to the other local stations here and they got footage from them as well. So that was really how the collection started was with news film. Meredith Vieira, Newswatch 10, Fall River. Then they also realized that there was other kinds of film that they wanted to collect. Going to sources like the National Newsreels, places like Fox Movie Tone and the Paramount Newsreel, and they also, quite truthfully, put out the word to Rhode Islanders. So they had articles in the Providence Journal saying, we have started a film archive and we are looking for the beginning of the 20th century on film in Rhode Island and asked people to donate materials that they had. The overwhelming majority of the film here, particularly the news film, has not been viewed at this point. The sort of rough calculation is that we have over 3,000 hours in running time of film. The majority of the film that we have here, because it is television news film, those are very short stories. They're on average, you know, about a minute long. So when you're talking about over 3,000 hours, you're talking about tens of thousands of individual news stories. It is common knowledge to all that non-whites are still largely restricted as to areas. I am constantly discovering new film in this collection. I have viewed less than 1%. There are a lot of wonderful films that feature celebrities. We have Harry Belafonte, we have Joan Baez when she was in town for the Newport Folk Festival, Pete Seeger playing his banjo at the Newport Folk Festival. And then we have much more kind of local stories, things related to school walkouts and local campaign commercials. I mean, quite truthfully, everybody in Rhode Island knows Frank Caprio. Like, we have a Frank Caprio running for mayor commercial. Put a cap on taxes. Vote Frank Caprio for mayor, second column, September 12th. What's nice is there's sort of this interesting mix of the very local and then things that kind of touch on a larger national story. We have some footage here of a demonstration in Kennedy Plaza on March 21st, 1965, which is when the final Selma March set off. And it's Rhode Islanders showing their support for what was going on nationally, for this larger civil rights story that was happening in the country. But they're doing it here in Providence. One of the people who spoke at that demonstration was a local civil rights leader by the name of Arthur Harge. And he had actually been down in Selma for the earlier marches. So we have an interview with him where he's talking about his experience in Selma with Dr. King and then coming back to Rhode Island to bring that energy and that story back here. They found their freedom through self-expression and through uh, dealing with this matter. Uh, whereas to me, some of the most fascinating stuff is how what was going on in Rhode Island speaks to these larger stories. Home movies, for example, are one of the best ways that we have to get a sense of what did daily life look like at any given time, but most importantly, what did it look like from the perspective of the people who were living it. So I'm really working actively to cultivate relationships with communities who maybe did not previously think that the historical society was a place for their materials. That on the curation front is a really big part of my job, is bringing in new materials here and, and making sure that we're telling the story of as many Rhode Islanders as possible. Most of the collections that are here are from the mid 20th century. However, what most people don't know is that actually there was a film industry in Providence going back to really the early period of cinema. Before all production moved out to Hollywood, 
Cinema started on the East Coast, primarily based in New York and New Jersey, but there were also studios right here in Providence. In particular, there was a studio known as the Eastern Film Company. They had actors who were on contract. They were churning out one and two real comedies every few days, from what I understand. They were also making some longer feature films. They were a part of the kind of early cinema machine before it all went out to Hollywood. One of the most important parts of my job is not just to preserve this material and make sure that it's in okay physical condition, but really I see my job as being about providing as much access as I possibly can to this collection. And that means letting people know it's here and letting them know how they can use it and that we want them to use it to tell their own histories and tell the wider history of Rhode Island for all of us. Our thanks to Becca Bender and the Rhode Island Historical Society. While Hollywood may be known for its masterful storytelling, there are many good ways to tell a story. Tonight we begin a new continuing series called My Take. For each segment, we'll sit down with an individual to hear their colorful tales and special insights on a topic. First up, we meet someone who knows a thing or two or about spinning a yarn. Bill Harley has built a career telling stories, writing, and singing his songs. Not only is he a frequent performer at schools across the ocean state, he's a two-time Grammy winner for his imaginative children's albums. Here's Bill Harley's take on the many artful ways to tell a story. Out upon the briny deep where the wild and wet winds blow, there lived a cruel and evil man, the pirate Dirty Joe. He sailed upon the scummiest craft that ever left the docks. He roamed the world in seven seas in search of dirty socks. My name's Bill Harley, and this is my take on the art of storytelling. Asking why storytelling is important is kind of like asking why air is important to me, or why bread is important. It's because it's what we do as humans. It's how we make sense of things and how we, we talk to other people. People remember a story more than they do numbers or facts or figures because it's the way, it's literally the way our brains work. He found himself one night not finding a place. And the weather turned and the snow began to fall and he was alone on the road and the snow was piling up and he thought, Willie McPhee, what's going to become of you? Being a storyteller, it's a pretty it's a pretty big skill set. The people who are really good, the, one, the, the ones that I know are really good, they're, they're really smart. And they have a facility and love of language. And I think there's also an emotional uh, intelligence that they have um, that, about what the story's about and who their audience is. He said, you don't want to eat this? And I said, well, um, Peter, not really. And he said, well, that's okay. I said, yeah. He said, sure, it's really okay. You know why? It's for my dog. Everyone's a little bit different. Everybody that I see. And the dog ate it. Everyone's a little bit different. 
That's okay with me. And he liked everything. You have to be not afraid to be the fool. Uh, because if you're giving yourself to the story, you're not really watching whether you're coming off all right. Um, and I think the other one is that you have to be vulnerable enough to let the audience in, like, like this right here, and not afraid of that. Whatever has happened in the past 50 years digitally, it's nothing compared to what, who we are as human beings. And I, I see this in kids all the time. They say, well, they'll never listen. I can get a seven-year-old to listen to a 35-minute story if the story's well told and if it has something to do with them, if they can relate to it. I remember when my kids were little, I remember I said, no, we were watching the Olympics. We were watching the 100 meter race and they finished and broke the world record and Noah turns to me and says, gee, dad, why don't you run in that race? You're fast. <laughs> I said, well, no, I thought I'd, no, I just let somebody else have that. You know? <laughs> a couple of years later, he turns 13, one day he comes in the kitchen and just looks at me. Just looks, not speaking. And I said, what? He said, what happened to your hair? <laughs> and then he said, am I going to look like you? Most important stories to tell are actually stories of, of you and your family. Um, that the people who tell kids the stories of their names, or how they got their names, or who came before them, there's a grounding that goes on there uh, that you can't get from the media. The, the stories of, uh, told by the people who know you about the world around you are the stories that are really most uh, important in the formation of being people. So you don't need to tell the story as well as, as Disney or uh, or Amazon, but you, you, what you do need to do is tell the story. My name is Bill Harley. I'm a storyteller, and this has been my take on the art of storytelling. He wore a scratchy, scraggly beard and had but one good eye, and with a tattered piece of sail, his oily hair he'd tie. Hook for a hand? Ah, uh, yeah. He had that too. He found it very handy for picking in between his teeth to get out sticky candy. Finally tonight, a sneak peek at what's coming up next week. In the late 18th century, a small town in Massachusetts decided to change its original intended name of Exeter to Franklin after statesman Benjamin Franklin. In turn, Franklin gave them a special gift, but it was not the one local townspeople were hoping for. There are 31 towns in the United States today named after Benjamin Franklin, but Franklin, Massachusetts was the first. And this happened in 1778 when the town was founded. A document was presented to the Mass State Legislature for naming the town, and somebody along the way crossed out the original intended name, which was Exeter, and wrote in Franklin. But there was likely an ulterior motive for that name change, according to longtime historian James Johnston. Well, let me tell you about that. The local preacher of the Congregational Church decided that if they gave the honor to Dr. Franklin, that he would give them a bell for their new meeting house. Maybe one of Paul Revere's specials. Yeah, that would be nice, a nice bronze bell. The bell request for the church steeple was engineered by powerful minister, the Reverend Nathaniel Emmons. 
Benjamin Franklin replied by sending the now historic collection of books instead. They were loaned out from the Congregational Church and various other buildings around town until the Franklin Library was built in 1904. Why did Ben send books instead of a bell? The ever-clever Franklin explains in the words inscribed on his statue outside the library, sense being preferable to sound. Well, what he meant was, you know, would they rather know something of value or do they just want to listen to the ding-dong and the steeple? I guess that's what he had in mind. He was rich. He was the rich guy. And he's a guy that could afford to buy a bell with ready cash. And uh, buying a bell was a very big, big project. I mean, they were expensive. You know, you're talking about, in today's money, you're spending upwards of $200,000. And the books would cost in today's money? ten to 12000 of the original 116 books Benjamin Franklin gave to start the library, 93 remain. That's our broadcast this evening. I'm David Wright. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can go online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly, or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you for joining us, and good night.